Now that we've discussed our background on immigrant health in this country, we'd like to introduce our conversation with Ms. Song Yun Chun, a senior manager of health policy. Song Yun is the senior manager of health policy at the NYIC, um, which is the New York Immigration Coalition and the department to support work at the municipal, state, and federal levels to improve access to high-quality care for immigrants, New Yorkers. Most recently at Montefiore Medical Center, Song Yun directed a multi-site study to increase access to effective treatment for opioid use and disorder in primary healthcare settings. Song Yun is an expert in the field and will help us to understand better where the current state of policy is for immigrant health and what the future is as well. joined today by Song Eun Chun. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. You know, there's something that I think when approaching healthcare that I like to think of um, underlying everything I do, which is that healthcare is a right for all. And through that lens, I think that every aspect of healthcare through you know, insurance and delivery and such access um, needs to be available for any person, regardless of documentation status, regardless of you know any uh, a disability, uh, anything. And that's something that I think that you advocate for as well, because with the New York Immigration Coalition, it seems that you're working to improve access to high quality care for immigrants in New York. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what interests you uh, about health policy for immigrants? and perhaps how your immigration experience has been similar or different from your family's? Yeah, so um, thank you um, again for inviting me. So I think for me, the story is very personal. Um, I'm an immigrant myself. I immigrated to the U.S. from South Korea with my parents at the age of seven. And um, even though both of my parents are, um, you know, trained professionals, my dad was, a, you know, engineer, my mom was a professor, um, they knew some English, but you know, I think learning English in a classroom context and then moving to a country where that is sort of the language, that becomes the language where you operate, that's, that translation is very, you know, can be very turbulent. So I think for me, um, even though I was seven, I, you know, was, became the primary English speaker in my household and really had to navigate the healthcare system for my parents. So there are very two distinct in, uh, incidents um, growing up where um, I guess I would just point to one, my mom had to have, um, she was having internal bleeding and had to have emergency um, surgery. And uh, because my parents were small business old owners, they didn't have health insurance. And so um, that meant I had to navigate a very complex health system as a middle school child on behalf of my parents. And um, I just, sort of really interface with not only the care itself, but just sort of interactions with um, the medical system overall, insurance, staff, you know, like bedside manners to discharge to, you know, um, medical bills. And so for me, um, I still remember every bit of that struggle and what a financial burden it was for my parents to pay, pay back $20,000. When you are a low-income immigrant, $20,000 $20,000 back in the 19, I want to say 90s is, is a significant um, amount of money. And so that really stuck with me. And um, that has been the driving force of sort of the work that I do. How is my immigrant experience different from my parents? You know, I think significantly, I feel really privileged in the sense that I came here at seven, I was able to learn English pretty quickly. 
um, my parents are not able to use their professional degrees. Whereas, so what is, you know, they basically had to restart their lives again, forsake their career to give me opportunities. It's sort of a very traditional immigrant sacrifice that parents make so that they could send me to college, they could send me to um, public health school. Um, so in many ways, uh, I feel I have all the privileges that my parents um, were never able to have. And I see that even being played out now with the COVID vaccines and how, you know, because of language access issues, I've been trying to get an appointment for my parents, which in New York City is a bit complicated. Both of their um, vaccine appointments were canceled. And so I know that that is something, you know, I am lucky to uh, navigate on their behalf because they wouldn't be able to do that on my own. So I think I can't even quite even compare an immigrant experience because it's been um, extremely different. And I am privileged because of the sacrifices that they've made. So that's why this work is absolutely important to me because I know that we came here with the green card and there are many undocumented folks who are our essential workers who don't have documentation or risking their lives and have far less uh, resources um, that are rightfully theirs. Now, that Asian American identity is something that I share with you, and there's been something very disheartening going on in our community recently. Since COVID-19 started, there's been reports about a rise of hate crimes against Asian Americans. What, what are some of the ramifications in the Asian American community due to these? Yeah, I mean, I just want to give you some like quick statistics. I read somewhere that uh, the number of Asian hate crimes, it jumped from 3% to 28% in 2020 in New York City. And as you know, Vivek, many of our, you know, Asian American elders are like, is culturally not like in our um, sort of DNA to report some of these crimes. So, but given that more than 3,000 report, there are more than 3,000 reported incidents from the start of COVID-19 in um, New York City. So, you know, that is only a fraction of what has um, happened. I, you know, I see Chinatown here in Manhattan, Sunset Park, where um, I frequently have it, especially the one in Manhattan and all the mom and pop shops are closed. They are not receiving um, economic relief that I believe they should be. And so I, I think they've been hard, hit the hardest, right? And at, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, because of Trump's referring to the coronavirus as you know, Kung flu, China virus, absolutely xenophobic and atrocious you know, associations that, that, are, that are racist. So I think the Asian American community has really taken a hit and continues to do so because I'm seeing incidents even as of yesterday, a more recently 83 year old woman, elderly woman being punched in the face. I think there's something really um, even more degrading about attacking our elders because you know we value our elders. Elders are very important in our Asian communities. We, we uh, respect them. We understand the sacrifices they made to travel to this country. Uh, to provide us for a better um, for a better opportunity, so I think there's just something so damaging and um, hits at the core when so much of these attacks has been focused on the elder elderly. You know, it's something that you mentioned that it, this mentality comes from the top down. It's it's a pervasive culture of hatred and bigotry against immigrants, and that's just to start off. That you know doesn't really speak to even any. The, any number of the barriers that immigrants face when trying to access healthcare and, and much more. What barriers do immigrant experience, uh, immigrants experience when seeking care for um, themselves? Yeah, I can name some. I think language access is huge. I think it's also a loaded term because 
we sort of think we know what it means, but do we really? I think first, so for example, if you come to this um, country, you don't speak language, the language, how in the world do you navigate this very complex healthcare system? You don't have universal care as my parents did back in Korea or Canada. So how do you even know how to enroll in the healthcare? How, how do you have the right documentation, especially if you're undocumented, right? You have to have proof of residency, your income, you have to have a lot of documentation and you need to be able to, um, you need to be connected to like, let's say a healthcare navigator who can help you facilitate all of this complex processes. And then let's say you're lucky to have that happen, right? To get healthcare. But even if you are, once you get into, enter, you know, your footsteps into a hospital, how do you know where to go, right? How, you know, I think um, because of the language barrier, there are so, so many barriers that, um, you know, many of the immigrant families face because they don't really know how to communicate some of their needs. And I'm sure even if you don't know the language, you know when you're being mistreated. And I'm, I'm not saying all, you know, um, health facilities do that. There are many, many like health and hospitals that are friendly to immigrants, community health centers, but you still have to navigate through all that system to be able to ask and vocalize your needs. Um, and then sometimes when you get medical bills, I mean, even myself with insurance, I've seen surprise medical bills and I've had to make phone calls. So let's say you're an immigrant who you know does not speak English. How do you navigate that? Do you have someone to help you? Do you have someone with time to help you? Because I know that many immigrants like my parents work 14, 16 hour days. So that's, it's a privilege to even have the time to um, you know, break through some of those hurdles. So those are some of the few things that come to my mind. Yeah, that reminds me of a few years ago that my grandfather had to undergo a coronary artery bypass graft. And we exactly you know, received the same things, surprise bills, navigating the healthcare system. But one of the lucky factors in our case is that my grandparents live at home with us. And so they had myself and my parents to rely on um, to communicate with their healthcare providers. But that's not going to be the case for everybody, certainly not for most immigrants. Right. Um, and that really begs the question of if that's not the case, or perhaps if you're undocumented, how, how do you access care in New York City then? So for undocumented immigrants, I mean, I will say um, New York State has better um, has better um, healthcare coverage than other states. Um, if you are undocumented, there is Medicaid, uh, emergency Medicaid. I should say not Medicaid, emergency Medicaid. But as the name describes, it's not really insurance, right? It just covers the emergency. So you know, if you get into a car accident and you break your leg, it just covers for that emergency visit none of the follow-up. So that is not high quality care. However, in New York's, um, New York, women who are pregnant and children do get um, health coverage. So that is better than many of the states. But again, once, let's say a, a pregnant mom, you know, after her delivery, which sometimes does not end in birth, right? Six weeks after her, um, her delivery, her healthcare coverage is cut off. Same with kids, once they turn, um, 19, after at the age of 19, they no longer have the continuity of care. So it's all within a very specific time frame, which are none of them are ideal. And so what is really important is for our state to per, um, put up money so that undocumented immigrants, you know, all New Yorkers, regardless of status, should, you know, have healthcare coverage, especially during this time of pandemic. I, um, 
I do want to mention that, you know, the New York Immigration Coalition, along with some of our partners, we were successfully able to have uh, COVID testing and treatment included in the emergency Medicaid, which didn't happen until, you know, you know, but it happened as a result of our work. So we're happy with that. But, but again, as you know, many of you know, have read and I myself experienced, when you get COVID, you have long-term effects. You may not have the symptoms uh, of fever, but you have, you know, my mother who has had COVID, she, it's been two months since she's been COVID free uh, in terms of um, her symptoms, but she still has lasting uh, dizziness. Um, she still can't smell or taste. But if you're an undocumented immigrant, you don't have access to care after your testing and treatment, that's it. And that doesn't cover even the beginnings of um, you know, your, need, your healthcare needs. And that's something really important that we need to talk about, I believe, uh, the fact that access is just the first step. Insurance for everyone is just the first step. However, if you even if we were to even introduce universal health care, where, where would undocumented immigrants feel comfortable or safe to go to receive that care? We really encourage our immigrant community members to go to community health centers like Charles B. Wong, um, Apicha, and health and hospitals because um, they are really immigrant friendly. Um, they do have language, um, you know, access to interpreters, and um, they, you know, community health centers have the sliding scale fee. I think the other thing I want to mention is there is this program that was created under De Blasio called NYC Care. It's not a health insurance, it's, but it is a care program that links New Yorkers to um, to care. So that is one sort of new program. Well, I guess it's not new now because it's been about two years or a year and a half. But that is also another entry point, but it is only within New York City. We really encourage folks to go to community health centers and health and hospitals. Now, those are really important spaces for immigrant communities and undocumented immigrant communities to get their health care. But I would imagine, especially with places like Charles B. Wong and uh, Apicha, that they must have been hit very hard with uh, COVID restrictions and, and you know, all the isolation-related uh, restrictions of COVID. Have, has has you know, healthcare changed for this community uh, over the past year and a half? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I know that many of our community-based organizations that we work with through a city council initiative called Access Care, or Access Health NYC, we work with 31 CBOs that these 31 CBOs are funded by New York City Council budget um, to provide, um, you know, access to care and services for immigrant communities. And so, for example, uh, Voces Latinas, they're based in Queens. Even during COVID, they provided many of their services in person. And not only that, because there was so much transition or sort of a, um, I guess, shifting to telemedicine services, telecare. Um, that many of our CBOs were able to help some of their, um, you know, immigrant community members to link to physicians or providers through telemedicine. But again, um, that is, you know, it's been a great, you know, entry point to introduce people to telemedicine, but also it is really highly dependent upon how tech savvy one is. And there is a lot of support that is needed to set up these appointments, you know, technologically It's dependent upon, do you have um, access to the internet? So I think you know, CBOs like Bolsas Latinas, they have been really instrumental in making sure that there is some continuity of care during this time of uh, pandemic. 
Now, something I've been reading a lot about recently is this notion of public charge. Is that something you could speak about for us and um, just explain how it's negatively impacted the immigrant community? Yeah. First, I want to say we received um, really, really exciting news. Um, I would say two days ago, it's been such a whirlwind. that. Um, so the exciting news is that the public charge has been blocked nationwide. So it means it is no longer in effect. So now immigrants can get the care they need, um, whether that is you know, healthcare access, uh, social services, without fear. Um, I think what we need to now work on is the chilling effect. I think with public charge, with this, which is basically a wealth test to see if, you want, if one is gonna be dependent on the government, I think the chilling effect has been even greater because it really um, affects only a very narrow portion of immigrants. It's for those who are applying for a green card but the chilling effect meaning, you know, even my mom, who's an American citizen, has friends who have green cards who are afraid they were subject to public charge and they would not be, right? But that's what we call a chilling effect. People, you know, immigrants who are not even impacted thinking that they are. So now the, the exciting work um, and that is ahead of us is making sure that we combat the last four years of Trump's message, right? And I think just as much as it took four years to to incite so much fear and xenophobia, we need to do our work now to reverse the message that the public charge has been blocked you know, nationwide. So I think that is really exciting news. And so now that the, we are mobilizing, um, we're gonna be giving a training on Monday to train our CBOs and healthcare providers who are on the front lines to convey this message that immigrants you know, should not fear because public charge has been blocked to seek the, you know, seek the services um, and um, benefits that are rightfully theirs. So that is really, really exciting news. First off, that's phenomenal news. And it makes me think about how fear is pervasive in our community and well-founded fear as well. When there are institutions like ICE and you hear stories about families being you know, ripped apart in their journey to becoming American citizens, it's frightening. And, and when you have policies like public charge, which really lend themselves to this fear, it makes sense that people would be uncomfortable with trying to access healthcare when they have the right to do so. I wanted to talk a little bit about ICE, and I wanted to see how that institution has affected access to healthcare in undocumented immigrants in New York City. Yes, absolutely. There is rightful fear around ICE. I think um, one of the key messages that we always try to convey is that hospitals, places of worship and schools are off limits. These are safe places where ICE cannot enter. They cannot enter a hospital and you know, arrest uh, immigrants. They're, they're, they do not have a place in these um, in, in a hospital when, you're, when one is seeking care. So we've always encouraged our immigrant communities to say hospitals are safe. The same with schools, the same with places of worship. So please, when you need care, see, get the care that you need when you need it um, because you know, you are protected from ICE when you enter safe places. Yeah, that's, um, I think, something that needs to be expressed to all people. And it's not necessarily even to abate the fear that we're talking about here, but it's to have advocates and allies know that these places are safe um, and that their patients are safe and that should they shouldn't be subjected um, right. to the uh, harms of ice. Now, something you've been alluding to throughout this entire time and talking about was this the like the vital importance of interpretation and the ability to communicate freely without barriers in healthcare. 
What would you say are some of the differences that an official interpreter would make in the delivery of healthcare? Yeah, I mean, this is a, you know, high, highly professional, like very specific, like certification and very rigorous training that, you know, medical interpreters have to, you know, go through. I actually tried to go through that myself in Korean and I, I don't think I made the last round, actually. Um, I was in college and, and thought, oh, hey, my Korean is good enough, but there, it's a completely different skill set when to be a medical interpreter. And so I think the role that um, you know medical interpreters play are are critical. It's, you know, medical care, medical terminology is very specific, and I think it takes a special um, skill set to be able to not only understand those terms but to translate it in a way that is you know simple and clear. And I think the other thing is that is uh, also culturally competent. Yeah, that's that's certainly something that we talk about in my first year classes is we work so hard to develop our skills of communication and our ability to really understand, empathize and express the information that we need for patients to feel safe and for their health to be uh, our first concern. But when you don't have that interpreter to be able to do all of that, it definitely you know just removes um, a, a vital part of medicine. What are some of the shortcomings that good interpretation f- services face? Well, I think first there is a big difference between in-person and over the phone. I've been witness to both, you know, with my parents, um, you know, because I thought like I also um, wanted to see how the quality of these services that were available. Um, I think first over the phone is really not ideal because it's really didactic, right? It's, it's, you don't really capture the human emotion and expression and body language. That is 70% of how we communicate. Um, I think in person it's better, but I think the key is, you know, in addition to the, the interpreter being equipped with the medical terminology and understanding is, does this person also know how to translate this information in the, in the appropriate cultural context? Are they using the right terms? Do they understand the ramifications of certain terminology in certain cultural contexts? So, for example, um, you know, we had a my parents had a Korean translator. The translator is phenomenal in terms of um, her medical, you know, you know her language training. But because um, she wasn't as familiar with some of the cultural nuances, there were some there were some gaps in the way she translated some of the information. And so I was there to be able to step in. So there are, I think, it's sort of both language competency and cultural competency that really has to be um, an interplay at, at, you know, at the same time. And I, I hope that there is um, in the future, you know, there's more a focus on cultural competency as well, um, um, as opposed to just language. Do you feel that a physician who is a native speaker is comparable to one of these official interpreters? You know, I think I think that's a tough one. I don't think it's so black and white. So, you know, my husband is, um, he, he's a physician. He is a fluent Spanish speaker and speaks some Mandarin. I know he does a lot of interpretation for his uh, patients because, it, you know, sometimes he's the only person who is available. Um, I think that is better than none. Is he better or worse than an official interpreter? I don't know. But I also think he has bedside manners and sort of he tries to understand the background context of why a patient has come into this hospital, into, you know, his care. So I think it's sort of a big picture type of a question. It depends on the situation, the person, the language competency. But I would think that um, having a native physician who is a native speaker would be of great benefit than not having an interpreter. And would the native physician be better than someone 
who, you know, has a, who is a medical interpreter, but may not have the cultural context. I think that's a tough call. I think it's, it's, there are a lot of gray areas and it's probably dependent upon the sort of what, what is trying to be uh, addressed and conveyed at the time. But I think both are really important. And of course, as we are medical students, how, how do you think students can, can use interpreters to our benefit of our patients? Um, I think this is sort of probably beyond more of a, about the medical model itself is, you know, especially during the time of COVID, there are a lot of patients with actual physical symptoms, right? Like fever, unable to smell or taste. But then there are also post-COVID, there are a lot of mental health issues associated with it. And I think many times stress is sort of a, it can cause a lot of physical manifestations. And I think as students, um, when a patient comes into their care, it's really important to understand the broad, sort of the bigger picture of why they're in the hospital. Not just, are you sick? Let us get a diagnosis, but understand like what, what has brought them to this place. So I know that, you know, like my mom sometimes, or even myself, like I have a headache and it's not really a migraine I'm dealing with. It's a bigger stress in my life, right? As a working mom, that is what's causing me stress. Now, if I went to the hospital and the, and the physician or the student um, in training, medical student in training were to ask me, let's just treat this isolated headache, that is really not going to address the core issue of why I'm in the hospital. Um, so I think really trying to understand the bigger picture of why the patient or, you know, or the person that you're seeing is you know, needed to seek your care is really, really vital. I think that that really comes from an understanding of uh, cultural competence and that symptoms don't necessarily, having symptoms doesn't necessarily mean that someone is looking for a diagnosis. It means you know, there's much more involved in that process. And it shouldn't be our primary goal to just go around diagnosing people, but to understanding what is underlying the symptoms that they are expressing. And then if I can add one thing, I think, you know, it's just what we always talk about in public health is social determinants of health. Healthcare and you know health coverage is just only a sliver of that bigger picture. If you know housing, right, economic stability in this time of COVID, there's tremendous strain on folks to um, you know meet their monthly rent. If you are not, if you are unemployed and you you don't have the money to you know pay your monthly rent, that is going to make you stressed out and sick, and it will manifest physically. Um, and so I think we have to again when I say I guess the broader picture is really looking at the social determinants of health, how are, and then, you know, I think the other part that physicians and, you know, medical students, I don't know, you know, I don't know what you think about this, and I'd like to get your thought on this sometime, is, you know, linking patients, you know, to, to social services, and not just sort of discharging them to say, I'm finished with this patient now, but to say, do you have housing? And if not, how can I link you to an organization that can get you housing? So I think that really needs to be taken into um, consideration. No, I agree. Health is intimately intertwined with the social determinants of health. And really, a patient's condition doesn't start and end once they enter a hospital. It manifests beforehand. It continues afterwards. And having basic acts, like access to basic needs is, is of vital importance. And as you mentioned, it manifests with uh, physical symptoms, but it can also lead to a lot of stress and mental health issues. Which brings me to my next question, which was, how can undocumented immigrants and documented immigrants access mental health care? So what we encourage many of our undocumented immigrant folks is to get connected to their community-based organization because the sort of the formal um, medical care system 
doesn't link them to medical mental health services, given that undocumented immigrants, you know, unless you're pregnant or a child, you only have access to emergency Medicaid. And we're hoping to change that. But in the meantime, there are many wonderful community-based organizations in all five boroughs that provide social services, um, such as mental health. And so, you know, while we wait for the state to hopefully very soon um, provide um, health insurance, health coverage to everyone, regardless of immigration status, we encourage, we link our, you know, our CBO, like our immigrant communities with community-based organizations in their neighborhood that they um, know and can be trusted. As students, do you think it's important for us to take into account and understand what effects immigration might have on mental health? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you are an undocumented immigrant, that fear of public charge, that, that is real. It is immobilizing. We've heard stories of immigrant community members not fearing to walk out of their homes. You know, they wouldn't go see, like some some pregnant moms would not go see um, their physicians for prenatal care in fear of being, um, so I think immigration status is absolutely, it's, a, it's, a, it's an identity, right? It's a core of who that person is. So that absolutely is a vital part of who they are and wh- how it affects their worldview, how they function, how they how they don't function, how they see the world or, or interact or don't interact with people. So absolutely. Yeah, I believe it's an integral part of being a medical student to be able to advocate patients and especially for you know our immigrant patients around downstate there is a large immigrant community and it's very important for our students to understand and to be able to speak on the behalf of immigrants and to understand what unique uh, disparities are going on in in these communities is there something in particular we could do to advocate for immigrant communities um, are there any vulnerabilities that we should be in mind of yeah so I think key things come to mind. At New York Immigration Coalition, we have this statewide campaign called Coverage for All. Um, it is what I spoke about earlier, is to put pressure on the state to you know, put up funds so that all New Yorkers, regardless of their immigration status, can get um, access to health insurance um, or can get health insurance. Um, but during this specific time of COVID, we have this COVID essential plan bill um, which is a one-time temporary bill that we are pushing right now. It's, I believe the state and Senate are trying to, we're trying to push, get this into the one house bill between today and tomorrow, because it would be $13 million one-time investment, which is a drop in the bucket for our undocumented immigrants who are, who make up one third of the essential workers, right? They are the ones who are in the front line so that we can all stay home. So you and I can work from the comfort of our home, right? So that is a big push that we're making right now. It's Assembly Bill 1585. And we've been calling all of our senators and assembly members to let them know that this needs to happen now um, because they have been, you know, undocumented immigrants have been denied time and time again. And it just, it is atrocious. It is outrageous that they are being ignored. Um, And then the second part is vaccine equity. There is still a lot of work to be done at the city and state level to ensure that undocumented immigrants get vaccines. And um, one thing in particular that we're really trying to advocate for is, you know, um, you can either get vaccines by two ways, your age or your employment status. Age is, you know, you can, uh, you know, 65 or older as of now, although now the eligibility is, you know, greater, I think it's 60 plus. And um, as of May 1st, Biden said that all adults would be eligible to be vaccinated. But I think the other part is form of employment. If you're undocumented, you don't have a form of employment. And what's happening at the state level is that 
there needs to be a form of authorized proof of employment by the employer. What we are really pushing for is self-attestation for the undocumented person, but you know, him or herself to say, I am employed. And that is it. You don't need to, you know, you do not need to provide any form, any other form of employment. And that is something that you can really help us push and vocalize because that is vaccine equity. Anything apart from that is not. So those are really two key things that we are really pushing um, in this critical time. I think one more part of, of equity is access to information as well. Where, where do uh, these immigrant communities get their information on vaccines? I mean, you know, we need to push the vaccine um, agenda forward. And if we're not getting the information across equally, then that's never going to happen. No, absolutely. And so, again, language access is critical. And when I say language access, um, I think, you know, in certain areas, let's say Sunset Park, there's a large Chinese immigrant population. So information, you know, in poster form, in writing, should be predominantly in Mandarin or Fujianese. Like, it cannot be in Korean, right, for example. So it has to be tailored language access, you know, that is relevant for the community who are living in, you know, in, in that site. The same with, you know, Queens. Like, so I think many times we just, our tendency, I think, you know, I'm guilty of this, is, is to ask for language access or posters with messages or um, websites in the top six um, language languages that are spoken in New York State. I think we got to do better than that with vaccines. I think we've got to have messages that are spoken in that community and not have, because even for me, if I look at a poster with six different languages, I'm, I'm not going to read it, right? I know my parents are not. I actually asked them, did like a, you know, message testing on them. And, you know, I, I know that they said they would pass it on right by. So I think we need to have really targeted language access to make sure because this message is not being reached. I think the other thing is we really need to be reaching non-English media. Um, that is where many of our immigrant communities get their source. My parents to this day get their American news by watching Korean news, which I can't say is always um, accurate. But nevertheless, the important point is that, you know, WeChat, Line, KakaoTalk, those are major hubs of information that um, are used to communicate between you know, our immigrant communities. So there has to be messaging that is conveyed through those channels. Having community voices and having culturally competent methods of, of distributing information are really important. I, I very much identify <laughs> with uh, the idea that, you know, my grandparents sitting on the TV, uh, sitting on the couch watching Indian television, um, and that's where they get their source of info. It's really funny because you know, the information starts here, it gets bounced to India, and then gets brought back here. And that's what, you know, gets uh, digested. So we definitely can identify with that. Uh, one of the fourth year students was telling me a story about an undocumented patient in one of our public hospitals who has been there for more than two years because he could not be discharged home safely and wasn't able to go to any long-term care facilities. Could you tell me what some of the priorities for undocumented people's access to non-health uh, hospital services are? So, you know, because the person is undocumented, you know, the, it's really limited. And that's why we are really pushing for coverage for all, because that is one of the primary probably and only ways that undocumented immigrants can get care, full coverage, even, you know, beyond emergency Medicaid. I mean, so this person should absolutely have access to long-term long care and it's just because of his status. And so pushing and passing legislation 
on things such as coverage for all is really what's going to make it critical. I think the other broader campaign is New York Health Act, which is the, you know, basically universal coverage, single payer. Um, and we're pushing for that as well. But that would take a few years to come into fruition. So in the meantime, that is why we're pushing for the temporary COVID essential plan bill and then the coverage for all, which is the greater, um, you know, essential plan, permanent essential plan that is funded by New York State. Now, you've you've definitely talked about this at length, but I just want to make sure. First and foremost, you know, there's this new platform for millennials to advocate for important policies through social media. And I wanted to see, you know, if, for our listeners especially, if there were any other policies that you hadn't mentioned or that you would like to elaborate on that we should be aware of and yes. uh, just direct ways we can get involved. Yeah, so we have a phone to action right now. Uh, actually, I can send you the link. I don't have it, but I think that is a very, it's a very tech savvy millennial um, sort of um, savvy way of communicating. Um, it is a, a phone to action targeting all of, based on sort of your, your name and your geographic uh, area of um, where you reside. It has a pre-populated email um, targeting your senators and assembly members to say, we wanna pass this temporary COVID EP bill right now. And that is really time sensitive that all of you can help us push because what is happening is, you know, Senator Rivera and Assembly Member Gottfried are our champions for our COVID um, essential plan bill, the one-time temporary bill and the overall coverage for our bill. But they need to hear from our senators, from our, you know, we as constituents to be calling our senators and assembly members to say, this is important. You need to push this and tell Rivera and Gottfried to put this in a one house bill. This is the one time that this can happen. And so that is, this is really actually a real time way you can help us to push this, to um, help um, you know, our, our undocumented immigrants to get temporary coverage. You had started in the beginning talking about your, your story, uh, the, you know, the experience you had with basically being the, the, the point of contact and communication for your parents at such a young age. Could you just speak a little bit more to that? Uh, what's that like on, on, you know, on the mental health of, of a young kid? What that felt like? It's such a big responsibility. Yeah, so I think I laugh nervously because that's sort of my reaction when I talk about things that are a little bit traumatic. I would say um, it was a traumatic experience for me because what had happened was, so when I was a junior in high school, that was like the second incident. So my, my parents had a bodega in Baltimore City and my father had an armed robbery incident. And he, you know, wasn't a fluent English speaker. Um, and so I got a call saying that he was in a hospital. I knew, all I knew was, I mean, by this time, like I had sort of navigated healthcare system through my mom who had to have emergency, you know, OB-GYN surgery, but the emergency room, I've, I've never sort of had an interface. So I still remember going to the hospital in panic because I've never gotten that kind of phone call before, trying to find my dad. I think what was really challenging for me was, well, seeing visibly how my father was, but there was really like, there wasn't one person I could talk to to help me navigate what was the next step. Yes, there was like a, you know, a physician who told us like what had happened and like that my dad had, you know, and what, what was happening to my father um, physically. But I think what I had to navigate and what was really hard for me was my father wanted to be discharged because we didn't have health insurance. And the cost of ambulance, right, calling an ambulance and that bill, he knew enough to know that that was going to put us in a financial, you know, um, 
hardship. And so me trying to navigate what he was communicating to me, that plus what was that what the doctor was saying was that your father needs to have an emergency surgery. That is not a choice that I feel a high school junior should have had to make, but I had to make that choice because I was sort of the primary person who spoke, you know, English. That was really, really, I, I think that was um that was really heartbreaking. And I remember making the choice of course, to like have my father receive operation, but at the same time, feeling tremendously guilty that I am, I was going to have, I probably put my parents in financial debt. And I remember the nurse saying like, you have no other choice. We can work out a payment plan for you. I didn't understand what that meant. I actually thought payment plan meant maybe they will give us a huge discount. Oh no, that meant 20 years of paying back tens and thousands of dollars from emergency, the ambulance, emergency visit, and surgery. So I really think I'm not alone in this narrative, in this situation. Um, I think I was fortunate because we at least had a green card, right? So imagine if you're an undocumented immigrant, not only do you have to navigate that if you're a kid for your parents, you're also fearing ICE you're wondering like, is my identification? Yes, I was told, you know, in hospitals that my identification is gonna, is never, is not gonna be shared, but I don't trust the system and I, I totally get that. So I think that gave me a lot of, um, not at the time, but I think growing up and I think as more of an adult reflecting upon what happened, it gives me a lot of, I think, um, conviction in the, in the work that I do, because I think I can understand just a little bit of the hardship and the the challenges that many of our immigrant families face. So I think it's made me really humble and to think twice. And I think, again, to not tell other people's stories. We just really don't know what people are going through when we first meet them. So I think it's really made me, yeah, be humble and more compassionate as uh, cheesy as that may sound. But it, it was, it's not a situation that I wish upon any, any, any child. Maybe a high schooler is not a child, but I felt like a child then. Yeah. Yeah. We seriously thank you for your work. It's so sad that that, you know, had to have happened to you, but I, you know, the work you're doing now is, is pushing forward uh, such that no other 17 year old ever has to really go through that again. Uh, that's not something that we could ever wish upon anybody or would ever want to wish upon anyone. So thank, thank you again so much for telling your story. Thank you so much for explaining all these really complex issues to us. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, stakeholders and there's a lot of little pieces at play, but uh, piece by piece, I think we can move forward and figure it out. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow, Vake, what an interview. I'm glad we got to hear perspectives both from policy and a patient testimonial in this episode. I'm glad as well. It's just unfortunate that this conversation had to happen right around the same time that we saw this absolutely horrendous shooting in Atlanta where six Asian American women were targeted. And we see in New York City this steady rise of anti-Asian American hatred. It's a shame that the conversation, the, the moment that we have here now has to come on the back of these kinds of tragedies, but it's a really, really important conversation to have, something where it's been an underlying problem in our country, in our healthcare system, that really doesn't get talked about all that much, um, but we can see per the testimonials of Mr. Shah and of Sungun that, that it's something that really 
drastically affects lives, affects opinions towards their, their own safety. Um, so I, I'm glad we did, in fact, get to talk about this. Yeah, I think that a lot of it is lost in the discussion because when people think of Asian Americans, they have this idea in their mind that they are, all of them, high achieving from a, a high socioeconomic class, that their time of feeling racial oppression happened in the past and now we're living in like the post-racial age and we have even created this kind of myth surrounding the success of Asian Americans in the model minority which has awful repercussions in both the Asian community and other ethnic communities here in the United States. Yeah, uh, the model minority myth is something that's quite pervasive in our attitudes, in American attitudes towards Asian Americans. And really what it ends up doing is it sort of brushes all Asian Americans into this one giant group where there's just so much more nuance amongst the different you know, communities within the Asian American community. And what we see is issues that are pervasive in our mind, the Asian American community, getting just looked over entirely. Furthermore, what it does is it really um, becomes something of a comparison to other minority groups in this country, which is ridiculous. People use Asian Americans as this sort of flag saying, look here, look at the Asian, they're doing okay. You know, why can't other groups be like them? And, and it really, it, it, it's, it's detrimental to our progress in this country. What people don't seem to understand is that there is a history that affects many individuals in our in our country that that really doesn't affect Asian Americans as much, considering the large influx of Asian Americans to our country has happened in the late 80s and the 90s. Um, and as much as we do have issues in our community, such as the fact that you know there's obviously this rise in anti-Asian hate and and there's issues of miscommunication due to language barriers. That doesn't mean that we should be used as a point to show that 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 there's you know some kind of success in a group that isn't present in another. Um. Like you said, I think that also a lot that is lost in translation too, and when at least when it comes about immigrant communities, is that immigrants are someone, are people, have the social class before they move to United States. It's not like they're lies were blank slates. They had no identities until they moved to United States. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I really resonate with that idea that when we come to this country as immigrants, a lot of our previous history kind of gets wiped away with this single word, which is, you know, immigrant. You know, my grandparents, before they came here, my grandfather was a successful business owner and my parents um, had been educated. But when you come to this country as an immigrant, that kind of information sort of just gets put back beside this, this wall of othering, otherism, I guess. And it's, a, and it's a really important point because what we fail to do then is understand why certain trends happen, be it why are Asian Americans, why are Indian Americans more at risk of diabetes? Why, why is there a greater risk for hypertension? And it really doesn't get understood or solved until you start to understand that, you know, these are people with an identity and a culture and, and there's more to the story than just, you know, some had education, some didn't. And I think we saw a little bit of that 
when you were talking Mr. Shaw, he definitely had an idea of what hypertension was. He had an idea of what diabetes was. He benefited greatly from having a doctor who spoke to him in Gujarati. He had an understanding of Ayurvedic medicine. His doctor understood Ayurvedic medicine. He could go to India sometimes. There was a lot of privilege would be the wrong word, but there was a lot of benefits that Mr. Shaw had that maybe a lot of Indian Americans didn't have. And even just broadly speaking, a lot of other immigrants don't have to be able to have that kind of close connection to their own culture in medicine. And there's yet another aspect of how it affects not only like having the the development of chronic conditions, but the management of these chronic illnesses. Having uh, an advocate in the truest sense of the word, someone that understands you, can speak your language, understands your culture, it goes a really long way. And, and clearly it was to the benefit of um, Mr. Shah, but it's not something that everyone can experience. You know, one of, one, of the, one of the things that I thought about when I was speaking with Mr. Shah was how powerful being able to just speak English is and, and having an education and stuff, but how limiting it can also be should you not have had access to that. We don't have an infrastructure in place to support those that may not speak English as well as Mr. Shah did. You know, that reminds me of this, this past weekend, my grandmother um, had a bit of a, a medical emergency. And while we were trying to determine whether or not she should be seen at a hospital, well, one of the considerations I had to take was whether or not she would feel comfortable discussing how she was feeling and you know what her problems were, what, what, what pain um, was uh, bothering her if there was no one that spoke Gujarati with her there. Um, and clearly with COVID, you know, there's limited, there's restrictions on who is allowed to go to the emergency department with her. So it would just be her by herself talking to some doctor who may not necessarily speak Gujarati and who may not go through the extra effort to find an interpreter if I could speak the language um, to communicate with her. And that's something also that, that was talked about in our interview with Songun which is that, you know, having, having that resource when you don't have the ability to speak English is so important. And, it, and it's, it's, you know, I really don't want to think about whether or not my grandmother is going to be safe because she can't speak English when I'm worried about her health. I want to be just focusing on can we figure out why um, she's having pain and can we resolve it quickly? But instead, I have to take this extra element into account, which is unique to the immigrant community. You're very well right to be worried about this because chances are not only would physicians find it or uh, people in charge of providing care find it annoying to have to provide translator services, it's also coming into a de decline because private insurances don't consider it a reimbursable service most of the times. And translator services, they are not they're not cheap, mostly because also they're not in high demand. So it's this this awful cycle of with if hospitals can provide it, they're not being used. If private clinics want to provide it, they're really expensive. It's being cut as part of a cost by the private clinicians. So we're starting to see that patients with limited English proficiency are truly a vulnerable population 
that we must make sure to protect because we know how important it is to be able to speak the language you feel most comfortable with with your physician. It's already uncomfortable to explain all of these painful, sometimes embarrassing, or basically become vulnerable to a patient, uh, to a, a stranger, and to not even do it in your own home language or a language you feel comfortable with. It's just not something we can expect from patients to begin with. So from English speaking patients, sometimes we understand that. So why would we expect that from patients who can't even communicate in their native tongue? So it's definitely something that we need to advocate for, not only in raising awareness, but asking for our politicians to create laws that protect our vulnerable populations because we can't do it by ourselves. We need to take care of our vulnerable populations. I think that's, I think at the end of the day, that's, that's what we need to take away. Understand what unique challenges face patients, just individuals in general in this country and make sure that no one really is left behind because that's what ends up happening. Uh, that's what we see here when we, when we don't make a concerted, concerted effort to take care of those that are vulnerable in this country. We see you know, instances like my grandmother whose care is delayed because um, I'm concerned about her ability to communicate and, and for the doctor to communicate with her. And, and it's, it's exactly what we see in Atlanta. We see you know, this steady growing sentiment against Asians that comes to a head in the most disgusting way. And in a way that I think we just, we just didn't take care of, of people in this country in the way that you know, more privileged white Americans may, may get. And if the listeners are still listening in early 2021, we encourage them to become involved with coverage for all our New York listeners so that all New Yorkers can have protection uh, insurance during these COVID times when if not even citizens, if even citizens have trouble finding health care in these times, imagine how hard it would be for undocumented immigrants to find it. And know that now Biden's president, but not everyone considers the current environment to be so hospitable towards immigrants. And considering the, the events that have been happening recently, it's understandable why we still live in fear and it will take a while for these wounds to heal. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And we will hopefully hear from us soon in our next episodes. Have a good day. Take care.